that uh, my cold has not gotten better. So far, negative for COVID. If that has changed, we'll let you know. But even if it's just a cold, you don't want somebody who's coughing a lot to come to the, the sound stage and infect the team. So let's do a Just Jesus story, all right? I have quite a few Just Jesus stories. This one isn't one of them. It's always seemed awkward. It's always seemed out of place. If I'm being honest, it's, it's one of those times that Jesus doesn't sound like Jesus. And yet, I believe that if we look at this more carefully, and perhaps even in context, that some layers can come off of this onion. And we might find something beautiful in there, but more challenging than beautiful. We're still uncomfortable with where this is all going. In Mark 10, we find a treasure house of stories. And it would be wrong just to grab one, pull it out, without acknowledging the other stories. Jesus is going from event to event to event. Things are happening quickly. Each one of those has an impact upon the next thing happening. But even more than this, sometimes one of the stories two back has something happen which will be explained in the stories to come. Other times, there will be a story back near the end that whenever it's revealed, you go back and you read these stories again in a new light. And I think that's what's going on here. We looked at two of the stories in Mark 10 a couple of weeks ago in our Snowbound Sermon Sunday. That was the story of James and John asking for places of honor and, and yes, danger and responsibility in Jesus's kingdom, wanting to sit on the left and the right hand. And then we had a man that wasn't looking for any recognition at all. He just wanted to be back in society. He wanted to help society. He wanted to help his family, but he was blind. And therefore, he was a beggar. Because in those days, blind people did not have jobs open to them. And so Jesus heals him, and we are given his name, which is very, very significant uh, in the Semitic cultures. By giving us his name, we have, he, he has status. He has meaning that has lasted for 2,000 years so far and will continue to, I'm sure. Well, today's story comes after Jesus has had run-ins and knocked heads with a bunch of groups who are bringing different issues to him. He's thrown out a demon that refused to come out when his apostles tried to toss him out. We'll do these stories another time. <clears throat> He ran into another argument among his disciples about who was going to be first. Yes, there was more than one time where Jesus had to interrupt an argument about who was going to be number one and two in Jesus's kingdom. People do that. People love rank. People love position. But we'll talk about that later. Later on, by the way, that's when James and John bring it up. They're trying to do an end run around the rest of them. Well, they've got into themselves. It's just so human. And then Mark 10 opens with Pharisees arriving. <coughs> Sorry, <coughs> this is why I'm not there. They, they were coming with trick questions to try to trap Jesus. By the way, this is still common. Uh, people will fire off messages to me in comment sections, which first rule of the internet is never read the comments, or through Facebook Messenger, second rule of the universe, don't use Facebook Messenger. 
<clears throat> or email, phone calls, text, and they will say, here's just, I'm just, I was just wondering, you don't know this person. And when you respond, it's, you find out after a while, it might have been a trap. Well, Jesus went through that all the time. They came at him with, all right, there's this theological political argument. Back in the day, theology and politics were the same beast. No one ever thought about separating them. There was not a society that said, I'll be your king, but you worship anybody. No, there were rules. And while Rome was quite happy with you worshiping all kinds of gods, it was only if you uh, admitted or you bowed the knee to Rome as the superior gods of your god. And so always politics and theology. And this is about divorce and remarriage and what was going on with adultery and what is adultery. So they were trying to trap him in that one. There was also right after that a very awkward situation where little kids wanted to see Jesus. I'm sure they'd heard about miracles and they'd listen to their mom and dad as they sat on their blanket and ate their food. You didn't eat at tables very often unless you were rather wealthy. And so, you know, they wanted to go see who Jesus was and his apostles are running security, stopping the kids from coming up. And Jesus goes, don't you dare do that. You know, these are, these are my besties. These are of such as the kingdom of heaven. Well, then we come to this story starting in Mark chapter 10 verse 17 because this is a strange story people have come up with all kinds of ways to explain it there there's a whole list of motivations given about why this man this rich young ruler would would come to christ what are his motivations every word he said and every word that jesus has said in reply has been scrutinized many thousands of times the different versions of the different story have been examined together to see if they unfold a little bit and shed some more light. And that's understandable. The other versions of this story, by the way, if you want to write this down for later, are in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. All right, Matthew 19 and Luke 18. Again, context is everything. What do these stories in front of this and behind this? Behind it was another power grab or attempt and the, the healing of Bartimaeus. What do they all deal with? Well, they all deal with power and status. Status. These are very human concerns. But we also see them in the animal world. They're all around us. Dogs are pack animals. There is always a leader in the pack. There's a pecking order even among the birds. That's why it's called a pecking order. They're in primates. No matter which form they are, whether they're baboons or chimpanzees or great apes or monkeys, they have a very strict social order. Among elk or deer, you see them bashing their antlers together. There is a social order for power and status. My father-in-law raises longhorns in Texas. And I was out with him and he, you can feed them out of your hand. Uh, he's, they're his pets. But uh, as, as you were walking around, I asked him, I said, I don't know what kind of animals herd animals are. I said, I know pack animals and I know flock animals, both of which have a set of very well understood behaviors. What's a herd behavior? Do they have 
an order. And before I could even get the rest of the sentence out, he goes, oh, yes. He says, they go after each other. It is not a straight out fight, but we'll push here, we'll bite here, we'll shove there. Every cow in this pasture knows exactly where it is in the line. And he said, and if I take one of them, put it in the truck and go have a surgical procedure done on it or something, when I bring it back, it starts at the bottom and has to work its way up. Well, here's the thing. Jesus wants us to be different from the animals. He doesn't want us to be an animal. He doesn't want us to be a whole bunch of noisy kids fighting to see who's king of the hill. He wants something different from us. But things can get in the way. There are things that can really get in the way between Jesus and us that will keep us from being able to do for Jesus what he wants us to do and will keep him from being able to do things for us. And hence the story. This young man comes up. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Fair question. Every single one of us has it. And even though most of us think we know exactly what the answer is, there's always that little bit of doubt that we'd be willing, if I only had one question to ask God. Whenever I ask people that, um, the, the vast majority is something like, am I okay? Am I, am, am I doing all right with you? What can I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus does a little odd wordplay here. <clears throat> Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. That was kind of a one-off sentence. And in most versions of the Bible, whenever the modern printers print it, they don't make a separate paragraph there. And I think that maybe they should. Because that seems to be kind of a, a throw-off sentence because it doesn't match with what goes next. It doesn't contradict. What I mean is it doesn't flow. It's, a, it's almost like, all right, guys, you know, gather around some logs. Let's sit down and have a discussion. You know, you're coming to me? Huh, okay, appreciate it. And then, so why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Well, there are going to be some things happen later but not yet in Mark and Matthew and Luke. They, they're very consistent on these stories. There are differences, but they are more of a different perspective. They, they don't really contradict. They kind of flesh each other out. Now he gets a hard bet. <clears throat> you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false accusation or testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. <coughs> See why I'm not there? Teacher, he said, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Let's stop. All three accounts give basically the same story. So what's, what's going to happen here? Well, Jesus is about to lower a boom. But first of all, he says, okay, keep the commandments. And he names some of them. What you don't get is in Matthew... Matthew has the young man saying, which commandments? Decent question, by the way. 
Because if your first thought is, well, the Ten Commandments, that's what he's talking about. The Jewish people looked upon the whole of the law. So 613 laws, if you count them one way, 611 if you do it the other way. So he's, he's going, which ones? And so Jesus gives him a few. Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, and honor your... We got six. Some people say we have five because they put defraud and steal in the same thing. Um, and whenever the guy goes, he goes, oh, I've kept those. So it's a legitimate question. You know, um, did I do something wrong with my food? Was it not kosher? Did I do something wrong with the sacrifice? I mean, all of those, we are human beings. We, we have problems. He might have been concerned about what other commandments were there that he might have missed, in which case he was a decent, honorable guy. He also could have been wondering how, much, how many of these pharisaical laws are really your laws? Because that was a problem. Matthew talked about that in Matthew 15. They would take these traditions and make them into God's laws, something which religious people have been doing ever since Jesus well, actually, ever since the Garden of Eden. So Jesus then says it. And the guy goes, I've, I've done this. By the way, he was not claiming perfection. He was saying, like many of us would say, you know, I'm a Christian. That doesn't mean on my worst day that I did Christian things in Christian ways. But I'm a Christian. Trying. This young man saying, I've been following this road. <coughs> and again, excuse me can't turn away from the mic I'm wearing it Jesus lowers a boom here Jesus looked at him and loved him got to get that in there Jesus wasn't thinking what a haughty what arrogance to come up and stand before your Messiah and said I've kept all those ever since I was a boy so do I need to do anything else he loved him. Jesus understood. He's telling me the truth. He's a good man. He's done well. And he wants to do better. But there's a problem. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. All three accounts say basically the same thing in that passage. So is Jesus asking us to give away everything? Well, in a word, no. He told this person to sell what he had. Because in this person's life, the single most important thing to him was his wealth. And I bet he didn't know that. I bet he didn't know it until right then. I bet he thought wealth was a part of who he was. Perhaps inherited, perhaps hard work, doesn't matter. But it was part of what he was, part of who he was, part of his life, the gestalt, the whole bit of his life. And then the real focus of his life was God and following the commandments. I think he truly believed that. And I think everything that any outward person looking at him would agree with him saying, yeah, you're a good guy. Jesus loved him. But Jesus knew something about him that he did not know. God wasn't the most important part. Money was. 
and that if he had to give up one or the other, he might eventually choose God. But he wasn't ready to follow Jesus yet because there's something in the way. <coughs> and this other phrase, he, was his, he went away very sad because he had great wealth. I want you to think about that. I want you to play with that sentence. I think it would make a greater impact on English speakers if we said, and he was very sad for his great wealth had him. His wealth was controlling him. His stuff was controlling him. I got to ask, and this is something I have to ask myself all the time, so I'm not beating you up. I believe this is a part of our duty as Christians to stop every so often and say, is there anything I own that keeps me from following the examples of Jesus? We need to think about it. The great church in Ephesus just stalled out. It was never able to get off the ground until in the book of Acts, they gathered their books of magic and sorcery and false gods and witchcraft and the like, and they burned all those. After then, in the Bible, the Ephesian church is doing great, growing, sending out uh, charitable gifts, sending out missionaries, but they had to get rid of something first. It's rather like the backpacks that we make our kids wear now, where they have to take home everything. When I was in school, they wouldn't let us take home our books because they knew it wouldn't come back. They'd give you sheets of paper with your homework on it. You'd fill that out and you'd bring that back. But now they got to take everything home because of locker security and bombs and the like and what a world we're in. But every so often, even as I'm going just to do something, I'll pick up my backpack and think, what's in here I don't need today? I might need to clean this out before I go any further. I'm told some women's purses collect like that as well. And I've heard comedians make a lot of fun about it, but I've had no personal experience. So what is it that you're carrying that you don't have to have? We had a family in one church where uh, we served years and years ago that um, they had a couple of kids in the teen program. And so when the youth minister asked for places to bring the teens to have teen devotionals, teen gatherings, they did not step up. And he needed another place, so he went to them. And their response was, we just got new white carpet, and a lot of our furniture is white, and we just don't feel comfortable bringing in the teens. Ding, 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 ding. I think I know what would occur if there was a little discussion with Jesus. Now, these people aren't bad people. They're good people. I don't know why they chose white carpet, but that's not a sin. It is an ongoing obligation. Um, but if that keeps you from being able to share what you have, that's a problem. When we were working in Scotland, I got a car. Um, and one of the first bits of advice I got from another preacher in Scotland was, no, don't let people call you for rides for Sunday. At that time, I have no idea what it's like now. At that time, buses didn't really... They weren't good for Sunday travel. I would assume that's changed. But people would call you from miles away asking if there's a way that you could come get them. 
And he's saying, I've worn out two cars. I've lost a lot of money. You can't keep them repaired. You can't keep them clean. So just don't. And I'm, I looked at him. I said, that's, but I think that's what we're supposed to do with our stuff. And we never came to terms on that. There's so many other things. Uh, I have guitars in the house. I love guitars. But if I was too afraid of them being you know, dinged up to use them in a church or to let teens or somebody come and play them. And if you've come to my house, you know this. I, I point out, so you pick up anything you like. Don't worry. If you ding it, it doesn't upset me. It's a thing. I had to learn that. That wasn't natural. Christ had to teach me these things. So, I want you to think what it might be that is standing between you and God, between you and Christ, your full service, your full devotion. What has you? What do you own that also owns you? For some, it's entertainment. I know people who would rather miss a Sunday worship than miss an episode of their show. This is very different now that we stream and we can binge watch. But I can remember many times Christian women going on, they would not miss a, an episode of The Bachelorette or The Housewives of. And I'm going, what kind of entertainment is this? What, why are you so devoted to this? And the response back was not exactly what I wanted, but it might be entertainment, it might be security. You know, I'd love to give to Jesus. I'd love to give to One Generation Away, Grace Works, Flint Global, the Bread Shed up in Poplar Bluff. I'd like to give to those, but you know, you know, people are saying our money's going to be worthless and we need, need to save. What about that don't make treasures for your, store up treasures for yourself on earth? Well, that's got to be a metaphor. Really? What do you have which has you? On Twitter, social media, and the like, Politics, your stance on COVID and vaccinations, do you have that or does it have you? We'll come back to this. So, verse 23, Jesus looked around to his disciples and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus again said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Some very early manuscripts say how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, <coughs> this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up and said, we have left everything to follow you. There's so much here. First of all, let's address the elephant that is not in the room. In other words, the myth. There is a myth that this is referring to short gates in city walls that camels had to get down, stoop down low, or in most versions of the myth, get on their knees and shuffle through. These were called in the eye of the needle. No, 
That story, by the way, first showed up in the 15th century. You go and you look, and there are lower gates, and some of those were used to bring in cargo. Some of those were used to bring in livestock. But no camel gate was set up to where they had to get on their knees and crawl through. It's a myth. There's a 9th century line or two in a manuscript which may have been the start of this, but that's 900 years later. The myth being told for the first time is in the 15th century. So, no, they weren't stupid. They didn't make their camels do that. It's a metaphor, however, that was very well known to people in Jesus's day. The eye of the needle was a way, it was a phrase for them to say a difficult task. We still use that. You know, sometimes <coughs> a pilot, as they are landing on an aircraft carrier, say, uh, they're told to follow the ball. Um, I won't go into all of the instruction there, but it's like threading a needle. I have been with a pilot in a two-seater airplane where we had to thread the needle around storm clouds. And, and you were really dodging clouds to get down safely in, in bad weather. Any difficulty, you know, that's threading the needle. You know, natural talent is a real thing, but even in natural talent, you have to do the hard work to develop it, to thread the needle. So Jesus is saying, this is going to require all of your focus. If you're rich, it's going to be very difficult because your stuff keeps calling you. Whenever I bought my first house, I found out all of a sudden it begins to wear out, break, a problem, you fix, fix, fix. And that's all houses, all cars, all things. It is very easy to get to the point where you own enough things that they own you. And these things may be material things, such as with this young man, but they could also be attitudes, politics. It, it could be your, your character, the way you deal with people can own you rather than you own it. Rich people are going to have to work relentlessly. Now, this isn't salvation by works. This is a constant clearing of the path between you and heaven. It's like any addiction. You're going to have to do some self-care. You're going to have to talk to yourself. You're going to have to monitor yourself. Let's say that I want, I'm piloting a boat. And that boat, I need it to go 180 degrees. So I'm going due south. Every wave, every bit of the wind, every torque of the engine is going to pull you off that needle. So you constantly correct. You set rudder trims. You adjust the wheel. You set an autopilot on. They do. Uh, uh, and you work with it. But it's not a, hey guys, it's set. Let's go make a sandwich. You have to make corrections. We are all at sea. We are headed toward our safe harbor of Christ. And while we are safe within his arms right now, to keep us pointed toward him is going to require constant correction. And we have to be the kind of people that open our eyes and say, am I doing anything to make this more difficult? Peter pops up here, by the way, and says, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus assures them, and you put the three stories together, you will be rulers, and anybody that leaves anything from me will get 100% back, 100 times back. Some people use that as a prosperity gospel thing. Don't even try. That, you'd have to ignore the first part of the story. You cannot outgive and you cannot outlove God. However, did Peter and the apostles leave everything 
No, I bet it felt like they did. But after his resurrection, Jesus walks to the shores of Galilee. Peter, John, and the apostles are out there in their boats with their nets. They didn't sell him, get rid of them, and enter a life of poverty. They did set them aside, put them in family use, I'm sure, to keep going. And to them, that was leaving everything. And Jesus didn't go, no, you didn't. Jesus is kind. But it felt like they gave it up, but they didn't. And that's another warning to us. I think we can often, as the scripture says, think we are standing, but take heed lest you fall. And then, interesting, Jesus in John 21, 15, and, and I'll wrap this up real quick. My voice is going and your patience is going. Thank you for putting up with this, but we're an online church. We can, we can adjust. We can do things like this <coughs> and not give each other colds, COVID, bubonic plague. In John 21, 15, I've heard so many sermons over this. Peter, do you love me more than these? And they get into the weeds quickly. I, I did research for years, and I believe J. Harold Greenlee got right down to it correctly in a journal called the Journal of Translation, Volume 1, Number 2, back in 2005. I wanted to give Dr. Greenlee full credit for this because he goes on for many pages parsing every single tense and voicing of every single word. And he says... He wasn't asking him, do you love me more than the other apostles? He was looking back at the boats and the lines and the nets and saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? Remember, Peter had not covered himself with glory before or after the crucifixion. But after a private meeting with Jesus mentioned only in one line and in one gospel, and after this event, we don't see the frightened Peter anymore. He steps out on the day of Pentecost and tells them, you crucified your Lord and your God. And he is resurrected now. And you've got to repent. You've turned and be baptized now. What, what accounts for the change in Peter? What in the world happened to Peter? Well, with Peter, it was impossible. But as Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. And God drew him past the things that were holding him back. May God draw us through the things and past the things that hold us back. May we, as the writer in Proverbs say, said, make level paths for our feet so that things aren't more difficult than they need to be. Don't be carrying around things that are actually gripping you. Give it some thought. Give it some thought. And God bless you. Next week, Devin Pickard uh, I'll be preaching in his church, and we have two speakers that will be speaking at our safe harbor on the soundstage. So in the meantime, stay as well as you can. If you're not well, stay home and love one another.